Your favorite things feel made for you. Your education should too. University of Maryland Global Campus, formerly University of Maryland University College, was made to serve the military and working adults like you. Today, we continue that tradition by offering frequent start dates so you can get started with convenient online learning that fits your schedule, by recognizing your accomplishments with credits you can earn for what you know, by providing no-cost online resources replacing most textbooks because a college education can fit your budget too, and with no FAT or GRE required for most programs. University of Maryland Global Campus, made for you. Last year, we awarded more than $15 million in scholarships to qualified students, including community college students, service members, veterans, and working adults just like you. Discover how we can make your education and your goals for the future a reality. Visit us at umgc.edu. That's umgc.edu. Certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV. At Office Depot Office Max, we're here to help you work from home, an office, or even a coffee shop. Shop laptops, notebooks, ergonomic chairs, desks, and more. Although your local store at Spectrum at Reston Town Center has closed, you can shop at our store at Benedict Drive and Bartholomew Fair Drive. Or shop 24-7 at officedepot.com, and we'll have your order ready in-store or curbside in just 20 minutes. Find everything you need to end the year strong at Office Depot Office Max. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Chauncey Show, where we're always right, never left. We put God first and politics second. I'd like to welcome you to the show. I'm your host, Chauncey Brown. Before we begin, I want to send out prayers to all of those in the state of Florida, all of the first responders that are still in the recovery effort of the unfortunate condo collapse in Florida a week or so ago. I also want to send out special prayers for all those in Cuba that is fighting against the communist regime for their own freedom. And I would hope that America and those from the left would take note uh, that socialism, communism, Marxism has failed all over the world. And if we look at Venezuela, we look at now what's going on in Cuba. We do not want America to look like those countries where people are fleeing to America to get away from the oppressed situation that they are in. I hope that the left and the Democratic Party, of course, the squad has been silent on this. I posted about this earlier, that the Socialist Democrats are silent on this issue and it's very telling. But we have a very exciting show for you today. I'm honored, proud, and blessed to have in the studio with me today Colonel Julia Hall, who is a veteran, a patriot, a proud mother who understands we are not concerned about parties or labels, but our shared dreams and values. In short, Julie states, she believes in us, the construction worker, innovators, innovators, entrepreneurs, business owners, cashiers, delivery folks, leaders, teachers, artists, everyday people, police, firefighters, soldiers, sailors, airmen. These are the people who make up America and make up the fabric of Massachusetts. 
that Julia has so eloquently stated. In Washington, she states, too many elected officials support a government that serves itself, rejects our principles, and holds us back. And during this extraordinary time, our leaders need support. What always has and always will get our nation back on track is us. Let me welcome to the studio veteran, retired Colonel Julie Hall to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, my gosh. Listen, I want to thank you, and I'm really honored to be here. I, um, it's always a great opportunity to be able to talk with folks. And, and really, you know, one thing I want to say is we'll talk a little bit. Can I talk a little bit about the media? I spend my time, the majority of my time, reaching out to podcasts, reaching out to some of the, what I would call the mom and pop, the local media because I found that I get a, a much better shake, if you would, from from local media. So I'm going to give a big shout out to people like yourself, where we're able to speak freely and not have us be cut off with, you know, something that you know what happens usually is they cut me off and call me some kind, you know, a, a Republican, a mean mm-hmm. Republican, and then you know I never get the chance to actually explain you know, what my platform is. So I do appreciate it. I get a lot on the local cable TV, and I appreciate all of you more than the mainstream media. Julie, thank you so much. You know, uh, I am blessed. I'm a God-fearing man, and I'm very thankful that I'm, I'm in the position to do this for America, for candidates like yourself. You know, it's going to take a village to raise a family, it's going to take all of us, no matter what role we play, to try to save our nation. And I'm just thankful that I can play a small part in having people on like yourself who are real public servants. I don't have politicians on my show. I have people that I believe are God-fearing and that have a desire to really serve the people. So thank you so much, uh those kind words and and I'm honored and blessed as I said earlier to be able to be a part of this journey to make America great again Um, Julie talk a little bit about you have an extraordinary background talk a little bit about your about your background um, so my audience will get to know who the colonel is that I love to call you as colonel (laughs) out of respect to my dad you welcome. My dad was a, a Navy veteran, and he taught me one of the biggest things in the world, and that was respect. And um, and you've earned the title of Colonel. I can't thank you enough for your service to our country, and also wanting to stand up again to serve the American people is very, very noble of you, and it should be noted and recognized. So I'll allow you to talk a little bit about yourself, and I'm excited to hear about what happened to CPAC, and then we can oh, talk a little bit yeah. about, yeah, your ideas for the state and for the country. And also, you're going to be back on my show again. I know that 45 minutes or an hour is not going to be enough time for us. So do the best that you can, and we're going to have a good time sure. this evening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. One thing you know is we're from New England, and people always tell us to slow down. So you're going to be surprised what we can cover in 45 minutes because we talk so fast. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep it slow and, and calm. So, um, so, you know, I'll start off with 
my uh, where I was born, and I was born in a I, I would say a middle class suburban town outside of Boston called Walpole, very small town. I have I'm one of seven brothers and sisters, and my parents I remember both worked. They both had a job. My father sometimes working two jobs. My mother was a nurse, and my father worked at um, he was worked in electronic jobs and sometimes in contracting jobs. And then he worked at the local racetrack at night, which was kind of cool because we would go and visit him. And it's funny, he would always have tickets for us. Go watch the horses. And, uh, you know, we were really excited if the horse came in. But, you know, I'm used to living in a household where we watch the dollars and we stretch the dollars. So from my very beginnings, I was cognizant about money and accountability of money and ensuring that we had enough to feed the seven mouths in our family, what my my mother and father did. So I worked and started working at an early age. I got a learner's, um, a working permit at 14 years old and I started working. So I think as I look back already, I have was developing my personality, if you would, which is sort of a go-getter personality and one thing I can say is I I enjoyed the money I enjoyed the money it's great when you're young and you start seeing you know money coming in which and I'm going to kind of allude off that that's you know when you talk about what's happening with the kids today and I always say to people you know when they get their first job and they find out when they go into an interview that not only do they not get a call back but not everybody gets the job nobody not everybody wins that's going to be a very sad awakening for people and those young kids. And I think when that happens, that's one of the turning points when these young folks realize, whoa, hey, wait a minute. They've been you know, telling me all along, everything's going to work out fine. And that's when their first sad awakening. I remember with my son, it was that way. But so I learned at a very early age to work hard and to, to work very, very hard. The other thing that I knew was, as far as college went, the primary people that were going to go to college in my family were going to be my brothers. And I think that's sort of usual in a lot of families at that time, that the male, um, they wanted to make sure that the men were able to take care of themselves. But I had a mom that worked. I had a mother that worked and cooked for us and cleaned for us. She was superwoman. I, I, I don't know if I could ever be like my mom, but I sure did appreciate having her as a role model that there wasn't many women at that time that worked like that and did everything. There were often times when my mother and father were both coming. One was going to work and the other one was, was coming in from work from the night shift, barely having enough time to feed us breakfast and then, you know, scattering seven children's off into the wind for, for school. So, uh, that's where I came from. And, you know, I, I can't sit there and say, hey, we were poor. You know, I know my parents work hard. I don't know, you know, in terms of finances, you know, how, how much what's going on. But I did know that feeding seven children and keeping seven children was very taxing. I do, you remember hearing my father always being stressed out, never feeling like there was enough. I, I just remember that feeling there was never enough. So when it came time for college, I had saved up enough money 
from my little part-time jobs and my babysitting jobs, I actually saved up enough money to put myself through community college. And I went to a local community college, and I have a great respect for community colleges. People need to look at those a little bit closer on their way, you know, to the university and so forth. Not everybody needs to go to university. Community colleges are wonderful, especially in the state of Massachusetts. That's one thing that we pride ourselves. We have a very good, you know, education system. So I did that, and at the end of the community college, I thought, well, I'm out of money now. <laughs> I paid for community college. I got an associate's degree, and I had that in human resource, you know, human resources. That's what I started off with, sociology, psychology, human resources. I didn't really see myself. The only thing open at that point in time would have been casework, and I really did not much see myself going into that career field at such a young age. And I don't know how it was that, you know, we came to talk about the Air Force, but I had another friend that I used to pal around with, and I remember coming in one day and I said, hey, why don't we think about joining the Air Force? And she's like, no way, no way, we're not going to join. I said, okay, I didn't think about it. The next day she comes in, she says, you know, that's not a bad idea. Two days after that, the two of us are in a recruiting office on our way to the Air Force. So I had a really really, really good career from the very, very beginning. I started off where I was in a career field that it was a medical career field. I have a very severe fright of needles. I don't think there's too many people that like needles, okay? But I actually passed out giving blood one time. So I said, medic is probably not the thing that I want to be in. And that's actually, sure enough, the job that I got. But while I was there, somebody looked at my paperwork and said, listen, you have a background in psychology, you have a background in sociology, and you actually passed the test here in the Air Force, you should have gone directly on. So I thought, oh, no, now I'm stuck, right? But I'm never stuck. I'm not the kind of person that gets stuck. I said, what can I do about this? You know, I never thought in a million years, oh, the military, you know, strict and I didn't care. I was like, "Um, if you don't ask, not going to get. So I asked, what should I do? And he said, well, the people from mental health are right down the hallway. Why don't you go have a chat with them? And it turned out that that was great, wonderful. And when I got to my first base, I was lucky enough to get reassigned into the behavioral health section of the hospital beginning and served me well throughout the whole rest of my life. I had a friend. He ended up being a very good friend of mine who was a psychiatrist, and he said one thing to me I'll never forget. He said, you, Julie, one thing you learn is you just, you don't have to know things. What you have to know is you have to have, you have to know people. And if you know people, you know everything. And, and that, you know, that statement could not be more right. If you know people and you can read people and understand people, you really do. You're going to make yourself, a, you know, make your way around very, very nicely. And it was probably one of the best skills that I learned from the military. Now, I was enlisted then, and I think that's an important point to point out in 1970s. This was the end of the 70s. People were still reeling from the Vietnam War. And as a behavioral health specialist, this was the first time we started seeing people come with what we now know as PTSD. We did not know what it was then. 
And I did have the opportunity to actually meet with them. I actually interviewed them myself. We would start off with the technicians would be the ones. And there were a few times where it was pretty scary, the types of people that were coming in and what was happening to them and how they their brain just sort of took over and, and protected them from all the horrible things that they have seen. So I have a great understanding of people. And again, I think that served me well. I was enlisted. When I went in, not many women went in the military, first of all, and fewer stayed. There was a joke that kind of went around that most of the women came in to meet their husbands. Didn't meet my, I didn't meet my husband there. And that wasn't, that wasn't what I was looking for. I was going, still wanted to finish college. I wanted to finish my master's degree. I mean, I, I wanted to finish my associate's degree and get my bachelor's while I was in the military. And at that point in time, that was the only goal that I had, was to finish my bachelor's degree. And, and I never had any intentions of staying in. But I did stay in. And that was an anomaly for a female. Uh, Colonel, uh, you have had an extraordinary humble beginning, and I, I want to footnote that you are the American dream. And as I'm listening to you tell your story, uh, we have several things in common. My dad was involved uh, in electronics uh, in the 50s and 60s. It's ironic. And then he got ill, had a heart attack, and then he went into public life. But my mom, too, worked, and she worked at the time. It was for uh, Bell Tell. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up the same way. Uh, I, I would say middle class because I didn't grow up poor. And uh, both of my parents worked, and my father even worked two jobs. Um and, you know, growing up during that time, I grew up in the 60s. I think that you might be a few years older than I am. You know, we understood family value. We yeah, understood respect. Right. We understood hard work. We understood the value of education. And uh, today, uh, not trying to get off of the subject, but we've lost that type of moral integrity of America and our country, and I know you and others uh, like ourselves are trying to fight uh, to get that back. Um, go ahead. Do you want to share something? Please go ahead. Trish. Sure. No, no. So I, I agree with you 100%, and that was one of the biggest things that I to say when I was in the military um, is that how lucky I was. Now, when I first went in, when I was enlisted, I was that age where you just got to get away from your family. I couldn't wait to get away from them. Uh, and that didn't last very long because you missed them after a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's hard. So I went on and I got a um, – and actually my brothers in particular were not happy that I went in the military. They did not like to think their sister was going into the military. And everything changed when I became a sergeant. They said, my sister is a sergeant, and they got very proud. I guess I just needed that status to make them feel better, I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Um, but they were so proud of me, and that's when things sort of changed for my brothers in particular. 
my father was very worried when I went in because he said, and this gives you a little insight to my personality, he thought there's no way that I was going to make it through because I like to talk back. <laughs> I don't. I have a hard time letting anybody tell me what to do. And and he he thought, oh my God, she's just going to have a horrible time in the military. But you know, really, it's your parents that that teach you that. And I used to look at him and say, well, guess where I got it from, Dad? <laughs> you know, so, so I I think that's right. And you know, one thing I want to say about my father in particular. My father was a very unusual man. He was a, a person that he had so much insight and, and so much justice. He was the kind of guy that would reach out to somebody sitting at a table alone and invite them to sit at our table. And that could be a handicapped person, could have been a person of color, it could have been a person, anybody. But my father would always be the one to reach out to that person. So in my family, my father and mother never had to tell us how to do the right thing. We knew what the right thing was to do because they showed us. Amen. And I'm blessed. blessed. Amen. I, I, I am truly blessed by having the parents that I did because I know that's unusual. Um, so, you know, my father and mother passed, but, you know, my sisters and brothers and I talk about them quite often. You know, when you get older, you appreciate what you have when you're young, you can't stand them. You can't wait to get away from them. Mm-hmm. When you're older, you appreciate them. So when I, I, I had my six and a half years in the military, after that, it was another turning point for me where I said, well, I need to get my bachelor's degree. And in order to get your bachelor's degree, you have to, I, I actually got out and went on reserve status for a short period of time because you usually have to stay for two years. I went into ROTC, and that's a two-year program. For some kids, it's four years. Now, for me, since I already had an associate's degree, I only was required to do two years, but it ended up that I only did a year and a half because I was prior service, meaning they knew that I knew how to wear my uniform, and they needed, they needed people. I became a hospital administrator at that point. After I got my bachelor's degree, I met a board. There's a specialty board you have to meet. They interview you, and they decide whether you're going to be qualified to come in. And I just remember my boss, the same guy that told me, you have to know people, pulling for me, and he said, you can run anything. You are a person that likes to take charge, and you could do this job perfectly because the job of a hospital administrator was to actually run the hospital. And all the different sections under the hospital, you have to make sure they work very carefully together and keep working together so that you could give good health care. So mm-hmm. interestingly enough, I then became part of the health care system. And it was wonderful. I just, I just loved my job. And I did get my commission at that time. It's funny because the commission was the secondary thing. I wanted the bachelor's degree. But once you got the bachelor's degree... You were able to get, become an officer, and which I did. So I started off as a second lieutenant, which, which truly almost felt like it was a demotion for anybody that knows the military because I had already made it to staff sergeant. The difficulty at, with those being staff sergeant going to the next rank is, you know, you have to take a test. And those, I have to tell you, those tests are very hard. So any enlisted person that makes it up to a chief or a senior enlisted person, 
they deserve everything because it's not easy. They make it very hard. All I had to do was go to college and get a degree. So that's what happened. So I had a great appreciation for where I had come from and the people that continued on in that level. I would always respect them. So I started off as a second lieutenant, and people knew right from the beginning that what they call a Mustang. A Mustang is somebody that had been prior service. You know, it's sort of like the horse that broke away from the herd. So I broke away from the enlisted herd, and I think that's where the terminology comes from. So I was a second lieutenant. And again, the interesting thing at this point, again, it's still very much a man's world. There's not many women, and no, not many women officers. And what made it even more uh, challenging was I was a hospital executive. I wasn't a nurse. You know, I wasn't a traditional female role. I was in a male-dominated role. I was in a business role. And no matter what hospital I went to, that's the role that I was going to have. I was going to be part of the executive staff, and I sure did get challenged. I'm five feet tall, and, you know, I would walk, and I knew that. You know, I'm coming in, I'm short, but I made up for it in my Bostonian accent and my Bostonian attitude. <laughs> so I let people know. Nobody's going to mess with me. And guess where that came from? My father. He said, don't let anybody mess with you and don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. Again, he was such a great man for his time. So here I was and, you know, second lieutenant. I had many assignments. I traveled a lot. And I think that's one of the things in the military that if you're willing to travel and, and move to wherever they ask you to, they will give back to you. I had many great assignments. I actually had one in, in Korea for a little while. But I started going to every assignment, and I always excelled. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but it seemed to be that the military was the place for me. I, I excelled. And the thing that I liked about being in the military and being a woman, I felt that it was the place where you were going to be treated as equal as you possibly could because your pay was based on your rank and not on anything else by that. In other words, if I was a staff sergeant and somebody else was a staff sergeant, we got paid the same amount of money. It didn't matter if it was male or it was female. And I thought, now this is pretty cool. So I enjoyed that. There was some challenges with that theory, and people talk to me about this. As I, People always ask me what I think about you know, what I think about gays in the military, what do I think about transgenders in the military? And my answer to them is, listen, in the 70s, we knew. I mean, there, there were gays in the military at that time, and we all, knew, we all knew who they were. Nobody cared. It only became an issue, and this brings us to critical race theory, it only became an issue when the Clintons came in and said, don't ask, don't tell. Well, we said, Come on, don't ask, don't tell, because we already know and we don't care. That was the rest of our saying that we said in the military. Don't ask, don't tell, we already know and we don't care. Meaning we had worked very, very, we all had worked together as a team. And anybody that wore that uniform and came to work and did their job was going to be accepted by your buddy next to you. And that was the same with race and that was the same with religion and anything else that, that you know, people try to look at. Uh, communities now and try to divide us into those little buckets. We, we weren't going to do that. Julie, we weren't going to do that. We needed to be a team. Colonel, 
I have to say thank you so much for an extraordinary introduction of yourself. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time left. And um, I will let you continue uh, finishing up with this story. And then we only have about 10 or 15 minutes left. Oh, my gosh. And, wow. Yeah. You, you did great. It does. You, so it does but so I, let me I, just, yeah, I'll, no, I'll but wrap it up I in a nutshell. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And then I'll, and then I'll, yeah, I'll do it. The bottom little... line is the, the, the extraordinary thing that I stand by is I started at the very bottom, as you heard, and I made it to the top. When I retired in 2009, I was a full bird colonel. Bottom, oh. no, nothing on my sleeve to a bird on my sleeve. I got out of the military, and I was anomaly again out in the civilian sector because they don't see women colonels. I've always been a role model. I've always tried to be a role model to women and men. And I was a commander twice, and it was my job to make sure that everybody was treated equally, and I was good at what I did. So we'll leave it with that, and uh, that tells you a little bit about me. For those that are tuning in, this is the Chauncey Show. I'm honored, proud, and blessed to have in the studio retired Colonel Julie Hall talking about her humble beginnings talking about her service in the military or community service. We will have you back on the show again. Uh, soon, actually, we're going to have you back on another week or two on our platform, U.S. National Election. So I want to put that out there to my listeners. Um, in these last 10 minutes, uh, and I will have you back on the show again to talk about issues. So this was a great introduction of, of who the colonel is on my show. Um, and I will allow you more time. We're going to elaborate, you know, more about who you are in issues uh, in the future. Um, mm -hmm. Let's just move quickly. Talk about, in the last 10 minutes, let's talk about CPAC. Uh, CPAC. You, you attended uh, a lot of excitement. Unfortunately, I wasn't oh. able to make it, so I'm going to let you tell my audience about your experience at CPAC um, and what you took away from that, and then we'll close out, okay? Sure. That sounds great. So, you know, here we are. I actually want to say I ran for Congress in Massachusetts District 4. I ran in the last race. I did not. I did, I did very well. I will have to say that from what I understand, I got a higher percentage of votes than any other Repu any Republican has in decades, which means basically no Republicans have run in this state for Congress in decades. So I wanted to change that right away. So I was at CPAC and deciding at the point in time, did I want to run again? Uh, I found out a lot of information about my opponent, and we'll talk about that at some point in time too, I'm sure, but we'll leave that for now. But being in CPAC, it was so energizing. And you would think that it would be, oh, you know, people look at Republicans, oh, they're, they're, they talk about this. They, it was just very, very energizing from the standpoint of people that loved the country. Now, I'm going to make it as simple as I possibly can. I'm an ex-military person. I love the country. I love the flag. I do not want to see this country being destroyed. I don't want this country to be a socialist country. I value the small businesses. I value the entrepreneurs. I value that people can come to this country and do something like I did. 
from a very small and humble beginnings end up being a full bird colonel and an officer in the military. And everybody can do that. That is open to everybody. So that is sort of the, the crust of what was being said at CPAC. I do have to tell you, I'm going to say that the highlight was Donald Trump Jr. I don't know if you ever heard Donald Trump Jr. speak, mm-hmm. but he's very entertaining. He's very comical, and he's very, he's very interesting to, to, to listen to. So there was a lot of Congress people out there at the time. Of course, more of them came in when Donald Trump. Unfortunately, I had left early Sunday morning, and Sunday morning is when the uh, former President Trump came in to speak. There was a lot of hubbub going on, of course, when he came. But leading up to that, there was definitely a lot of talk about some of the same issues, of course, that I believed in. But I left there just re-energized and feeling, I, I can't sit back again. I need to do this. I need to keep doing this. I need to try it. I, I feel that I have more qualifications. I feel that I love this country. I feel that the things that I believe in are, are better for this country and than what my opponent has to provide, and he's a Democrat. And I, I said I can't let this happen because this is we can't let this. We've got to take control. We have got to have control of Congress, and we've got to see if we can turn some of these things around. But I do want to say it's stagnating, though. When people are fighting with each other uh, so violently, the Democrats on this side, the you know, Republicans on this side, I see myself more as a conservative that loves the country, very simply, a conservative that loves this country and doesn't want to lose it. And that's where I sit. I make my decisions based upon what I think is the best thing for the country, period, not because the Republicans want it, not because the Democrats want it. So I feel very confident that I could bridge a gap and work with people that are willing to work with me. And that's the biggest message that I got at CPAC is that some people, you know, they wanted to, they are what I would call extreme right, and they have extreme left, but the majority of people want to see this country move forward, and they see it moving backwards. Disrespect for the flag? Absolutely not. I'm a military person. I've seen coffins come home with those flags on it, and I get emotional in this. And sometimes what people don't understand is that is the only remembrance that they have of their loved one that went over and served is that American flag. And so for that reason, I don't want people disrespecting the flag. You know, people say, oh, the football players can do this and the athletes can do this. And I'm like, not with that flag. And if they understood what I just said, they would not disrespect that flag. Amen. This is the Amen. This is the, yeah. Amen. My father's flag, when he passed away, the Navy sent a flag, and I have his flag on my my bookshelf behind me. Um, Nice. I, I grew up blessed to have a father. I was a Navy veteran. But, you know, the times that we grew up, you know, the Vietnam War, as you said, was ending. Um, you know, I'm going back. I remember every national holiday, my father put the flag out, hung the flag up out on the porch. Every <laughs> national holiday. Now, I'm sure you remember those days. Oh, I still do it. 
Labor Day, no matter what the national holiday was, Memorial Day, no matter July 4th, my father put the flag out there. And it is a shame that people like yourself, my dad, people that know have died and fought, and you spent your whole life, Colonel, protecting us, giving us a life of freedom, free will, free speech. And I will not let anyone as well take advantage of anyone who tries to disrespect our flag. This is the greatest country in the world, even with all its faults. And those, I say, if you're not happy here, I will buy you a plane ticket (laughs) to a socialist, Marxist, or any communist country. Because, see, these people that talk this nonsense, I don't think I've ever left out of their state. I've been blessed to travel around the world. People, and excuse me, I'm not denouncing anyone in this country, but the people on welfare, the people that we consider poor in this country are wealthier than the people that live in third world countries that barely have water, that barely have medical supplies. And you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And for the mainstream media to entertain this nonsense, it's really beyond the pale of un, of my of my conscious consciousness. It really is. It's sad. Yeah. To see it that big sad. tech it's- and the mainstream media is playing into this narrative from the left of helping to divide our country for whatever their economic gains are. But I do want to footnote, since Donald Trump has not been president, all of the major news media outlets, their numbers are down. Their viewership is down. And I hope that they'll learn their lesson by their pocketbook. It's interesting you say that because if anybody goes back and does listen to the speech, Donald Trump does say a few times, I told you so. (laughs) I told you this was going to happen. And, you know, I thought that, you know, he was a a different man. And I said, I wanted to see a different man. I wanted to see somebody who was more like, and I'm going to say this because I know some people get mad because they love Donald Trump. Listen, I've been a leader. So, when people, there were things that I didn't like about the, the former president when he did get sort of, I, and somebody said, oh, he's a New Yorker, he does that, and he says things off his cuff. Leaders mm-hmm. don't do that. Okay, leaders don't say bad things about their people. They don't. And so I'm hoping that, I said to myself, if he ever does come back on the scene, I hope that he's learned that. And he did also make a comment as he was speaking where I could see that he wanted to say something, and all the comment he made was, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice this time. And I thought, well, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. We might have had a breakthrough. So you know, I think that, you know, for all, it was good. You know, Colonel, um, I, I've known of Donald Trump all of my adult life. Um, I voted for him because he was a businessman. And right. he was used to getting things done, no nonsense. Uh, I have a, an animus towards politicians, even though I used to be one. Uh, I have a disdain for politicians today. Uh, I love public servants. I do not like politicians. 
and that's the problem with our country today, is that these politicians think that they're nobility, they're an elite class, they think they know what's best for us, and they forgot the people that put them there in office. And that's why I don't have politicians on my show. Yeah, I want, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that yeah. I, I look for people who are regular people like yourself mm-hmm. who come from the there fabric of America to be on my show. I, I, I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to become famous. I'm here to do my part to help save America because I believe in America. It has been good to my family. It has been good to me, and it's going to be better for my children and hopefully my grandchildren. And that's what this is about. And, you know, Donald Trump raised the level of consciousness of all those that were silent. He gave a voice to the silent majority. He said things that people thought but could not say. Whether we agree right. or disagree with him, 80 million people saw something in him that politicians today don't have. And I just want to say promises made, promises kept. Oh, and ab- thing, absolutely. And, and you, know, you know, you talk about leadership, and when I first ran for office, My mother gave me a wooden plaque. Leadership is not a position. Leadership is action. And that's why I voted for Donald Trump, because he's a man of action. He's not a leader. He's not a politician. He's a businessman that's used to getting things done. And that's why I supported him. You know, uh, I think he could have toned down some of the rhetoric, but that's his style. (laughs) That's how he manipulated the mainstream media for attention. I mean, he knows how to push the media's buttons better than anyone. And he did it well uh, for his own success and for the success of the American people. Because, I mean, we can talk about in the next minute, we can go from unemployment, stock market, uh, uh, independent, uh, 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 independent oil uh, versus now we're back to dependent. I mean, we oh, can go on and on. Uh, per- permanent funding of uh, of historical black colleges, uh, 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 funding for urban enterprise zones for investments of billions of dollars. I mean, I can go on and on. The Religious Freedom Act. I can go on and on of the things that Donald Trump has done in four years that right. the Democratic Party hasn't done in their whole existence. Well, not only they have not done, but they've torn down. Uh, this was the first time the United States has been energy independent. And my answer to the progressives on this is, didn't you know that this would have been the time while we're energy independent, number one, we're the safest we could possibly be in terms of war. But number two, this is the time where we invest and let our entrepreneurs invest in those kinds of energies that you're looking for. While we have the time, while we have the freedom, while we have the security, that's when you go and you invest. You don't tear it down and say, hey, listen, let's move over here and see if it works. That's ridiculous. That's Amen. Ridiculous. And, Colonel, you know, and now what are we, we're in wars now. We're, I mean, yes, just, you can see everything going to heck now. Colonel, we're going to talk about the China-Russia 
uh, the South. We're going to talk about that a little bit more on our next show. We're out of time. Please share with my audience briefly in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Sure. If people want to donate, volunteer to your campaign, or contact you, please share your website or whatever information uh, that sure. you can, your uh, Facebook or LinkedIn, whatever you want to share so people can follow you, donate, because we need money to get you elected. Absolutely. And we'll have a conversation about that, too. That's why we don't have public servants and we have politicians. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that. So my website is Hall for Congress, H-A-L-L-F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot com. And they tell me you don't have to say www anymore. That's old school. So <laughs> it is Hall, yeah, Hall for Congress. So if you put that in your URL, it will come up and you'll see a beautiful website. I'll tell you, I didn't make it. Somebody else did, but it is beautiful. And there's a donation button on there and that I hope you will donate. I am revamping. I'm starting my career, my campaign up again. And in order to do that, yes, you need money. And that's an unfortunate evil of what we have in our system is some of these people come in with lots of money. I don't. I have a pension, and I'm lucky and blessed that I have a pension, but I certainly don't want to dip into my assets and my retirement fund just so I can run for office. I will, and I'll give you every bit of my time, but Colonel, the money is what we need. Colonel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today and share with us your humble beginnings, your background, and your service to America. We are so honored and blessed to have you, not only on the show, but wanting to represent America again. Thank you so much. For those that are tuning in, this is the Chauncey Show. We're always right, never left. We put God first and politics second. We're almost out of time, but please check us on Thursday. We're going to have Merrill Rutledge, former gubernatorial candidate from Virginia, running for the state Senate in the studio on this Thursday at 6 to 7. We want to thank all of our uh, listeners for tuning in. Please, if you could make a donation to help us out, uh, because we do this for the American people. We don't have any big sponsorships. Please, uh, The Chauncey Show, PayPal me, The Chauncey Show, and whatever small contributions you can make will be appreciated, and we will footnote you on our website. Thank you very much all for tuning in. God bless you, and have a good night. Your favorite things feel made for you. Your education should, too. University of Maryland Global Campus, formerly University of Maryland University College, was made to serve the military and working adults like you. Today, we continue that tradition by offering frequent start dates so you can get started with convenient online learning that fits your schedule, by recognizing your accomplishments with credits you can earn for what you know, by providing no-cost online resources replacing most textbooks because a college education can fit your budget too and with no SAT or GRE required for most programs. University of Maryland Global Campus. Made for you. Last year, we awarded more than $15 million in scholarships to qualified students including community college students, service members, veterans, and working adults just like you. Discover how we can make your education and your goals for the future a reality. Visit us at umgc.edu. That's umgc.edu. Certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV. At Office Depot OfficeMax, we're here to help you work from home, an office, or even a coffee shop. 
Shop laptops, notebooks, ergonomic chairs, desks, and more. Although your local store at Spectrum at Reston Town Center has closed, you can shop at our store at Benedict Drive and Bartholomew Fair Drive. Or shop 24-7 at officedepot.com, and we'll have your order ready in-store or curbside in just 20 minutes. Find everything you need to end the year strong at Office Depot Office Max.